Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and we have with us uh, a regular guest now. Every once in a while, I invite uh, Gonzalo Varela from the World Bank to join us to talk about Pakistan's economy, particularly distortions in the market. Why the, don't we export? Uh, why is there an anti-export bias? And if you haven't listened to some of the earlier conversations I've had with him, I would highly recommend uh, that you go and find those and, and I'll try to link them in the description too, primarily because, um, you know, in Pakistan, we hear a lot about the need for import substitution policies, the need to make in Pakistan to help the current account deficit. And Gonzalo has a counterintuitive view and it's a counterintuitive view around the world, which is that import substitution policies have an inherent anti-export bias. And he explains that wonderfully. So I recommend you do that. But today, uh, we're going to be talking to Gonzalo, Gonzalo about um, a new World Bank report that's come out, which is also a must-read, uh, linked in the description as well. It's called From Swimming in Sand to High and Sustainable Growth, a Roadmap to Reduce Distortions in the Allocation of Resources and Talent in the Pakistani Economy. Basically, I've read this report, and if you read it, you should read it. Um, it basically lays out uh, what the core fundamental issues are in Pakistan. And if you were to change some of those distortions around taxes, subsidies, etc., um, you would have high productivity growth and higher exports and by extension, higher GDP per capita growth as well, which is a concern in Pakistan for a number of years. With that, Gonzalo, welcome once again to Pakistanomy um, and, and thank you for taking out the time today. Thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure, sir. So I read the report and I want to begin with a question a lot of people now have, right? Given the salience of the crisis or the long going crisis in Pakistan is that we don't grow a lot. And we have these quote unquote boom bust cycles, which I don't describe as booms because that really isn't a boom. It's a two year spurt of growth. But you highlight in the report showing the data that you know, Pakistan's real GDP growth per capita lags behind its peers like Bangladesh, India, etc. Um, and that again, people now know it's a it's a truth, and and they wanna they wonder why is that the case. So help us understand why is that the case? Why do we lag our peers so much? Right. So so this is this is an important challenge for Pakistan, right? Uh, in the past two decades, real GDP per capita growth averaged one point seven percent. Uh, the average for South Asia, just for reference, is, is about 4% or the same period. The average for low middle income countries, that is the income class in which Pakistan falls, uh, was 3.2%. Um, so when, when you look at the data, what you see is, is what you just described, right? So these periods of relatively fast growth, so it's not fast growth, as you said, it's relatively fast growth, uh, that are interrupted by balance of payments crisis. Uh, so that leads to what, you know, what we call boom and bust type of, of cycles. Now, if you go a little bit more into detail in the data, uh, that will help you get into the reasons. So if you look at the, the main sources of expenditure in the economy, what you see is that most of the growth is explained by consumption and by government expenditure. And only a small fraction is explained actually by increases in investment and increases in exports. So more consumption and more government expenditure without more investment means that you will need to rely more on imported goods, which wouldn't be a problem in principle if you also exported more. So if exports were growing too, but these have been stagnant. And that's why when you end up growing fast, what happens is demand for 
imports grow, but supply of exports can't catch up. So you end up accumulating external liabilities. So you have a large trade deficit that you keep accumulating. So that means more external liabilities. And at some point, these external liabilities become too large for foreign creditors to continue financing. And, and sorry to interrupt you really quickly here, because I know some people will have this question, especially some of our uh, PTI listeners who are there, which I love when, when they comment. Um, they will say, well, exports grew. Why are you saying exports are stagnant? You are saying exports as a percentage of GDP either decline or have remained stagnant, correct? That's the right measure to look at when you look at Pakistan's export performance. You can you can have different metrics, uh, you know, but one metric is the one you just mentioned, exports as a share of GDP. Uh, they peaked at the beginning of the 2000s at 16% of GDP. Today, they are at 9 uh, but you can also think about exports in relation to what the rest of the world exports, right? So the market share of Pakistani exporters in world markets, and that has also declined dramatically. So in nominal terms, yes, exports may have increased by a little bit, but truth is that when you put together imports and export growth, you see that import growth has been fast, and export growth has been mostly uh, very stagnant, right? But again, as you as you mentioned, it, if you look at any other reasonable metric as a share of GDP or as a share of global exports, what you see is that that sort of stagnation, right? Now, that is sort of a, a, what economists call a demand side uh, story of the problem, but that demand side story fits into a into a more structural problem. So, an economy in which investment and exports are stagnant is an economy that won't see fast productivity growth. And that's exactly what we see in Pakistan. So take a, a standard measure of productivity, uh, productivity of labor, the value added per worker. Uh, over the past three decades, what you see is that the average Pakistani worker added 40% more value. The average Bangladeshi worker over the same period added 175% more value. The average wow. Vietnamese exporter, 330% more value. So we know that over the long run, the differences in standards of living across countries boils down to one thing, and that is productivity growth. So the fact that productivity growth is stagnant in Pakistan is basically the main reason behind what you see in low uh, GDP growth in the country. And again, just for uh, audiences who are not well-versed in economics and may not fully understand productivity, just a very simple way of explaining that is if you're at a job, let's say you're making desks, um, there are three of you making desks and you make one desk an hour and your other colleagues makes three desks and another one makes five desks in an hour, odds are you would be fired from that job. Um, and think about productivity the same way, right? The ability of a Pakistani worker to add value to products is that improving in comparison to a Bangladeshi or Vietnamese. And as Gonzalo just shared, no, it's not, which then means you as the Pakistani worker, cumulatively as Pakistan, will not earn enough money. And therefore, your GDP per capita will lag the others because they will be paid more and earn more value with the rest of the world and trade more with the rest of the world. Gonzalo, correct me if that simplicity was a bit too off. No, that's a that's a great way of explaining uh, productivity. But let me add one more example. It's an ex because usually when we talk about productivity and productivity growth, the way we think about it is what you just described is doing things better, right? So producing more per hour. So if you're producing, you know, in your example, uh, wooden products increasing the amount that you're producing per hour. 
there's another way of increasing productivity that is allocating resources better. And let me give you one example. You have Babarazam, right? And you have Talha Talib. Talha Talib is a weightlifter for those of you that don't know. Is, is the champion, a Pakistan champion. If by an accident of history, you put Babarazam to weightlift and Talha to bat, your productivity will go down. And your productivity instead would go up if you reallocated these two, right? So it doesn't matter how good, you know, how, how much effort Talha makes in batting better or how much effort Babar makes in lifting more. They perhaps can make a lot of effort in, you know, trying harder, but they are poorly allocated, right? History for some reason wasn't good in allocating those resources. And so what you need is a reshuffle. You need to put Babar to bat because that's what he's good at. And you need to put Talha to lift because that's what he's good at. And that's also another way of increasing productivity, right? So you have these two things, how you allocate resources and then given that allocation, how well you work, how much more you produce per hour. That was your example. And you preempted my next question and thanks for explaining it that way because a significant chunk as, as the report argues, um, of the lag in productivity growth in Pakistan is stunted by distortions. Um, and you explain that through charts and you explain that through examples, but one particular area where Gonzalo, this stood out to me in the report was agriculture, right? And, and I raised this for two key reasons. One, of course, food inflation is through the roof in Pakistan, uh, but many Pakistanis now ask the question, well, wait a minute, we're an agricultural society. How come uh, there are food shortages and food crises in the country. What went wrong here? And you argue this is distortion. So again, help us understand how do distortions and re poor resource allocation affect productivity growth writ large, but in particular in agriculture? And again, like what have you found out through the data and through the research here? Mm -hmm. So let, let me let me uh, take a step back because distortions. Uh, so these distortions affect the way resources are allocated, right? Uh, and But distortions can be a, a, a quite vague term. Yeah? What does it mean, distortions? There are many things that are distortionary. What, what do we really mean? Uh, so let me give a couple of examples. So the tax policy can be distorted. It doesn't need to be, but it can be distorted. It can be distorted if it incentivizes resources to be allocated in a particular way to particular sectors instead of to others, right? So in the in the Babarazam example, right? Uh, if you make if you put an entry cost and then say a tax to to play cricket that is super high and a subsidy to uh, to 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 do weightlifting, uh, then perhaps Babarazam would have ended up weightlifting, and we would have never known the wonders he could have done. He he does batting because you know his 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 behavior would have been moved into weightlifting instead of into, into cricket. So removing that distortion, removing that tax to, cric to play cricket and subsidy to, to the weightlifting would, generate, would have generated that reallocation of resources and move Bavar to, to cricket. I will, I will stop you here on that example because you know many will actually say that in Pakistani sports, the distortions work the other way. The cost of entering cricket is far too low and nobody else gets the resources, which means that everybody wants their child to be Babar Azam when they could be an amazing gold gold medalist weightlifter on the flip side. 
good perhaps perhaps okay that's the that Small that may be the case. Like, i'm being i'm being facetious with my example here but please go on i just figured that that <laughs> a lot of people would say other sports need attention in pakistan <laughs> But the, let me let me give you a couple of examples of, of distortions that are not just on, on agriculture, right? That are economy-wise. So, so one is the one I just mentioned, that is tax policy. That can be distortion. In Pakistan, tax policy is very distortionary uh, because what you have is that property taxes are extremely low. They're almost negligible if you look at revenues from property taxes, but profit tax on manufacturing or services sectors is relatively high. So that induces investors to put more resources in real estate and less resources in dynamic trade-out sectors. So the fact that your tax rates are different across sectors shapes your structure. So it shapes the structure of the economy and makes the size of the dynamic trade-out sector small relative to the real estate sector. And because evidence shows that economies with large trade-out sectors tend to grow faster, that's a costly distortion to have. Another distortion is my favorite distortion. It's high import duties. High import duties increase profits of firms that sell in in protected domestic markets relative to those that choose to export. So high import duties increasing war orientation of firms. So that basically, if you, if you think that exporting leads to higher productivity growth, then that's another costly distortion. Now you asked me about distortion in agriculture, so let me give you a couple of examples there. Uh, the first distortion that we see in agriculture has to do with how Pakistan prices water. So one, and, 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 and let me just give the, 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 the headline there. Pakistan does not price water right. Uh, one of the most famous theorems on international trade, I'm going to get a little bit boring, tells us that countries should export products that are intensive in the resources that the country is abundant on. So for example, Pakistan export textiles and textiles are intensive in labor because Pakistan is a labor abundant country, right? So in that respect, Pakistan is is, is behaving according to that theorem called Hex-Carolin. But Pakistan also exports rice, and rice is water intensive, even if Pakistan is a water-scarce country, right? So the issue there is that you're not pricing water right. And this comes at a cost for allocative efficiency, for how you're allocating resources. And for allocative efficiency today, but more importantly, in the case of water, for allocative efficiency of future generations. So future generations are going to suffer from the fact that that distortion means that you're overusing water. And because you're exporting this product, actually what you're doing is you're giving away, so you're giving a very you're nice You're giving gift. a subsidy to global rice consumers by not pricing water you're correctly, You're giving correct? a subsidy. It's a beautiful present for the rest of the world in the form of, of free water that is embedded in those water-intensive uh, products, in this, case, uh, in this case, rice. The, the second big distortion is around uh, procurement systems. And, and the typical example here is what happens in wheat, uh, in the wheat sector, right? So the large government footprint in wheat markets through, uh, for example, setting of floor prices, yeah, uh, is a big distortion. Why? Because basically the fact that you're giving floor prices that are relatively high for wheat induces many farmers to produce wheat. And perhaps if they didn't have that intervention, so that floor price, they would be producing something else that could be more suitable for the uh, land that they have, given the, the agroecological conditions of the, of the soil in which they are, they are operating. So 
these floor prices and the wheat procurement system more generally, what it's doing is it's affecting the, the, the production structure in, agricult in the agricultural sector and not letting it match the comparative advantage of the soil in, uh, in the country. So when you see that more and more Pakistani households are consuming different types of, of, of food products, uh, what you see is that you're basically letting go uh, the possibility of diversifying into different crops that are more consumed uh, by, by Pakistani households. And this has important implications on productivity. It has important implications on, also on water conservation. And because you have to import more and more food products than wheat, then also has implications on, on, on another scarce resource of Pakistan that is foreign exchange, right? So it's, it's an expensive, it's another expensive distortion that you have there. So there are many other distortions, but I would say these two, the price of water and the subsidies in the form of these procurement systems, uh, particularly around wheat, are, I would say, the, the, the two of the most important distortions that are uh, preventing the agricultural sector to, to grow according to its comparative advantage. So wheat is an important and interesting one. And I want to, you know, have a bit of a back and forth on this, uh, particularly with you, because a couple of days ago, the former president of Pakistan, the senior leader of the Pakistan People's Party, Asif Ali Zardari, was giving a TV interview. And he was talking actually about wheat. Um, and he said, you know, we need to, we've raised the floor price to induce more farmers to grow wheat because we are now importing wheat and wheat has become expensive. And if we don't give that subsidy, um, there won't be enough wheat in the Pakistani market to feed the people that we have. The price will go up. And then, of course, that's a political problem, right? That's why the politicians want to raise the floor price. Um, and then, of course, we already hear in the mainstream media, in the conversation, oh, bread is now, naan is 25 rupees a pop, right? Or, or that there are shortages. Like even when I was in Pakistan, um, somebody who works uh, for us was telling us that, you know, uh, the the local mill in their neighborhood has been shut down because there's a shortage of wheat and there's this, it's expensive now, flour is expensive. Um, how do you then engage with policymakers who have this dynamic, right? That we actually need to do more of the procurement type distortion as you described, because otherwise bread will become too expensive in the country and we will have to import wheat. And that's a big no-no because it causes a whole host of political problems for us. And so we're not we're not going to listen to Gonzalo's advice. In fact, we're going to do the reverse of Gonzalo's advice because it's feasible. How do you then break through that conversation with the policymaker like the former president of Pakistan? Well, my the the what I would suggest is that the best way of doing this is is by providing as much evidence uh, as you can. Right, so in in this case, the 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 recipe for having a high price of of bread products or you know products that use wheat, bread, roti, whatever, uh, is to produce it very inefficiently. That is the recipe for having high prices, right? If you produce it really efficiently, then uh, food prices are going to fall bread prices are going to fall. Now, if if you're insulating yourself from international markets, it's likely that 
uh, you're not going to be extremely efficient in producing whatever you're going to be producing because you don't have any sort of competition to put some discipline on the way you produce, on the way you do things, on that productivity we were talking about before. Um, so you could, but, but I think at the heart of this is a distrust of how international trade works. Um, and the most efficient way of doing this would be let farmers use uh, their land to produce whatever is most productive to be grown in their land. Uh, and perhaps it's something that Pakistanis do not consume and let them produce that and export it. And with the foreign exchange that you get, then buy the wheat from whoever produces it at the lowest possible price. But there's probably another way of, of, of having the conversation with the policymaker is looking into who pays and who benefits from this scheme, right? Uh, and I think that's an important way of looking at things because sometimes we sort of get, uh, you know, some, sometimes the, the, what happens uh, behind these complex mechanisms is very different from what we think that happens. So we may think that a floor price gives some assurances to poor farmers, right? Uh, and they, that, they help, uh, uh, that, they, that they help reduce food prices. Uh, but actually what, they, what it does is completely, completely the opposite. So first of all, most of the poor farmers actually are, uh, they don't sell the wheat, they consume it themselves. Right? So they produce for self-subsistence. These do not benefit from floor prices. So the procurement system that is very costly tends to end up in benefits for large landowners. Uh, because also banks are in the system too, a lot of the funds around the, a lot of the funds that are destined to food procurement systems end up as bank profits because banks finance a lot of this and there's for those sorry to interrupt for those of you who may not know there's actually a circular debt in the wheat procurement system in pakistan which last time i checked was close to if not had crossed a one trillion rupee mark and i'll have to update that number by asking adil mansoor but yes there is a circular debt in wheat procurement which is money borrowed from future generations of pakistan to quote unquote provide cheap wheat to the people Exactly. So, I, in fact, a large portion of the of the government expenses on the wheat procurement uh, don't end up in farmers. Certainly, don't end up in poor farmers, right? Because poor farmers don't sell the wheat, uh, but don't end up in farmers. But end up on the financing costs associated to that circular debt. And who pays for this? So, who the, the ones that pay for this are consumers in uh, prices of of bread that end up being higher than what they should be. Um, so. Uh, uh, a different way of, of looking at this is look at what is happening with uh, import duties on food products and particularly on, on, you know, on wheat or wheat derivatives. Uh, and what you see is that import duties are relatively high. There are about 15% on average on the food products that are among the top 10 consumed by the poorest households. So if you, if you look at consumption patterns of the poor and look at what are the top 10 products and then match that with the import duties they, they face, you see that actually trade policy is working towards making it more difficult for the poor to uh, achieve food security in a way. So in a, in a way, this is a, this is a complex question because it links to the food security question, uh, but the world has done different, have, you know, have moved on 
from this sort of uh, procurement systems with floor prices in many cases and with much better results. I think the example of Bangladesh is a nice example for those that are uh, that are interested in this. Perhaps they can go to the to the report, uh, and we we have a couple of paragraphs on the Bangladesh system, uh, on on on. on how how do they work on food security? So rather than using uh, the system that Pakistan uses, you know they move to something that is more modern, more agile, and less costly. Uh, so I invite anyone, everyone, to 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 have a look at that uh, chapter on agricultural productivity and and have a look at that section. Yeah, no, that's important, and I'm glad you explained this. And and you know I'll go back to our Babar Azam analogy on the point of inefficiencies and and closing of competition. Right? If Babar Azam played his entire career in the PSL and did not play anybody internationally from the Australian sides, from the South Africans, because only a few international players make in because there's a barrier into the PSL, Babar Azam would never be a global number one player because he's not exposing himself to other players who are perhaps better than him, right? To improve his skills and learn and continue to get better at his job. So it's that example, right? You close yourself off, Odds are you will not produce a Babar Azam because you're not exposed to that competition. The second important point, Gonzalo, I'm glad you raised it on the distortion on the flip side, right? Which is 15% duties affecting the poorest households. So you're making things expensive for them. You are taking on more debt in their name, which does not benefit them. And oh, by the way, when the fiscal deficit grows, um, you argue that the GST has to be raised from 17 to 18%, which we all know a sales tax is a regressive tax, which again makes things expensive for them. So the money is being taken out of the pockets of ordinary citizens without giving them the benefit of it. And the taxes and everything are raised in their name so that they have cheap roti, but that's not happening. And I, you know, one of the examples I, I have from last year, I was talking to a former government official on exactly this problem and they were complaining about wheat being smuggled into Afghanistan. And I was like, well, the wheat to Afghanistan is being smuggled because the international price is higher than the price you've kept in the do domestic market. So there's an incentive to smuggle. Anybody who can, will, and actually does smuggle that product because it's more money on the table. And the solution, it was so, the, the frustration that I had in that conversation was that this policymaker's proposed solution was that we needed to spend more money to fence the border with Afghanistan and have better border management to prevent the flow of wheat out of the country. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. You're telling me first that you need to subsidize wheat and because of that, you get cheap bread. That cheap flour then is below international prices at least to smuggling. So then you're telling me as the ordinary citizen that you need to pay up more to fence the border. When in fact, if you just fix the damn pricing distortion in the front end, in the back end of this entire chain, none of this would be a problem. But because you don't understand that part, you're spending more and more resources to solve a problem that can be solved through fixing the distortion. That's the reason I wanted to get a bit in the weeds in this agri thing, because people relate to it. And I think it's a way for them to understand that what is done in the name of the poor is, or the ordinary citizen, not just the poor, is actually not benefiting the ordinary citizen. In fact, it's hurting them a lot more. Exactly. It's like putting an expensive lock in that weightlifting gym so that Baba Razam cannot ever leave and go and play cricket. Exactly. I, I like this analogy. I think we should stick to this one. 
Um, the other thing that's in the report that's interesting, right, uh, Gonzalo, is that investments ra- investment rates remain low. And, and you explained that in the beginning as well, that consumption and government expenditure drives growth in Pakistan. Investment is pretty stagnant, if not declining. Um, why is that the case? One of the things that to me stood out was, you know, the chart that you have in the report about banks and their lending to the sovereign in Pakistan, clearly an outlier, right? Even if you were blind, you would see that outlier effect. Is that the greatest reason that the sovereign basically sucks so much money out of the banking system that it crowds out everybody, which then means can't invest because there's no access to capital left anymore? Look, um, the short answer is in development, uh, things tend to be multi-factor right, determined by many things. So the short answer is, is not just that. Uh, but but let me uh, give a little bit of context. So sometimes we, we look at macro numbers, right? So what is the share of investment in GDP? Uh, it, it's low, right? I mean, the private investment in GDP is around 10, 10%, extremely low in, in, in the international or international comparison. But sometimes when you go at the micro level and you see what is happening at the, with firms, because at the end of the day, that 10% of GDP investment number, private investment number is, is the sum of investment rates of, of a collection of firms in the economy, right? So when we look at firm level data, that by the way is scarce, and, and this is something which PBS should be working more and should be giving more access of firm level data giving access of firm level data to, to a lot of academics in Pakistan so they could do more uh, firm level type of work that is so useful for policy. But anyway, that's that was a, a parenthesis. Uh, when you look at firm level data, one thing that you see is that a big chunk of firms don't even invest enough to replace their worn out capital. So their, their, their capital after depreciation is actually declining over time. Yeah, so that's, that's really like low. We, we're talking about really low investment rates. Uh, and as a consequence, what happens is that they stay small. So the average Pakistani exporter, for example, is about is less than half the size of the average Bangladeshi. And that matters because scale is important for many reasons, right? So if, if your scale is low, you're going to be less productive, you're going to have access to uh, a few opportunities, et cetera. Now, why is that? You mentioned one thing that it is important, uh, the credit story, right? So in Pakistan, the government is the main borrower from the banking system. Why? because the government has been running perennial and large fiscal deficits. And that means that it has high financing requirements every year. Um, And so a big chunk of that borrows from the banking system in Pakistan. So that leaves little space for the private sector to borrow and invest. Uh, So fiscal discipline is sort of a first step or a first order condition, I would say. We're sorry to interrupt again on this, but that's also a bit of a catch-22 in the immediate term, right? Because if you cut government spending to solve for this problem, growth will actually initially come down because G is coming down as the GDP, but it'll take a bit of time for the private sector to ramp up and and step in, right? That that policymakers should understand that, that it's not a switch that goes on immediately. You have to sustain lower government spending or lower fiscal deficits in, in the long term. So it's true. So what you're saying is there's a there's a, a government expenditure multiplier. Economists call that a government expenditure multiplier. When government expenditure increases, then GDP grows uh, through that multiplier effect. Uh, the, in Pakistan, the government expenditure multiplier is very small, though. Um, so so there's that. Uh, but also, as you mentioned, is you know one needs to think beyond the immediate short term. 
right? So uh, more fiscal discipline. And, and that fiscal discipline has two parts, right? So one is, is, is reducing the fiscal deficit, but also looking at better ways of spending, right? You need to spend in the right things and spend rightly. Uh, and also in the in the, in those wrong things you're spending, spend less. You collect uh, better so that, as we talked about tax policy, right? We already touched on that, that you need to tax yeah. or other sectors that you're not doing right now. Right. So once one one aspect is the is the tax story, but also on, on the expenditure side, and this is something Biden has been talking a lot about. On the expenditure side, I think there's a lot uh, that can be done. But basically, fiscal discipline will reduce these financing needs that the that the government has, and therefore reduce the crowding out effect it has on private investment. Right. Now, it's it's not just that. It's not just an issue of that strong. Uh, banking sovereign nexus. Um, there's also, for, for the limited amount of, of, of private sector credit that there is, what you have in Pakistan is, is insolvency processes that are weak and that allow firms that are systematically loss makers to continue in operation. And that leads to a misallocation of credit. So for some reason, these firms may be connected, they get credit, uh, when they shouldn't be because they have been they are low productivity, they are systematic loss makers, we call them in the literature, they are called zombie firms, right? So you have a, a, a insolvency processes that are slow, that have unpredictable outcomes and have low recovery rates for, for creditors. And if creditors don't have legal recourse, regardless of how much the government borrows, right? Regardless of that sovereign banking sector nexus, creditors will not lend for risky private investment projects if they don't have legal recourse in case the private sector doesn't pay. So having insolvency processes that are agile, that are according to international good practices, and having courts that operate also in an agile manner uh, with due processes that are uh, aligned again with international good practices is going to help with uh, channeling that limited credit that is available for the private sector into, uh, into a, you know, more, more, more productive into more productive activities. Uh, but there's a third element, right? And this third element has to do with the fact that incentives matter. Um, so Pakistan is a closed economy. It's a closed economy with limited competition. So in this context, firms can get away without investing in upgrading processes or in upgrading products. So their increased competition, and I would say more international trade, but it doesn't have to be more international trade. It could be increased domestic competition also, right? Uh, will help boosting investment rates up. So in a nutshell, I would say there are, there are three things here. So one is what you mentioned at the beginning, that is the crowding out effect of a large government expenditure. The second is insolvency laws and procedures and the way of the legal recourse that creditors have. And then the third is a system of incentives that promotes competition and therefore uh, the need for more investment. So I'll, because I'm loving the, the Barbarazam analogy so much, we last example we left it at was you've put a big lock in the gym where Barbarazam can't get out of, right? So if I were to you know extend the analogy with the examples you gave, you have a situation where the only gym that can train weightlifters is run by the government of Pakistan. So even if somebody else thinks I can run a better gym and train better athletes, you can't do it because the whole budget goes towards that one gym and that's it. I'm simplifying your example, but that's essentially what you're saying is happening. Then, oh, by the way, there's a lock. 
which means 10 years later, Babar Azam's back has blown out and he's not a good weightlifter, but because there's a lock, there's no insolvency process. He can't get out and nobody new can get in, uh, basically. And then third, because it's a closed economy, there's no competition. Even if somebody thought that they could outcompete this Babar Azam with a blown back, there's no money coming in. It's closed off and anybody from the outside can't open a gym because the permits aren't provided. So you're stuck with Babar Azam with a blown back trying to lift weights, but not winning any medals for anybody anytime soon, right? That's that's a fair extension of the analogy. It could be, it could be. Yes, 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 it could be. Could be. So we put Babar Azam in a jail basically with a blown back by this time um, and things are not looking up for him. And so need to break the lock, need to provide better financing for a gym. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm being a half joking, but I think people would get a, get a grip of what exactly is going on through that sports analogy. But I mean, on the competition side, right, uh, back to a bit of uh, wonkiness here. This is one thing where I personally get a bit frustrated, Gonzalo, is I remember seeing a few charts, but you know, from the Pakistan Business Council or Pakistani policymakers that come to Washington talk about the fact that, look, we are a great market for you to invest in because look at the average returns of an, returns on equity for Coca-Cola, Unilever, Procter & Gamble. And oh, they, they show this as evidence um, that Pakistan is a great place for foreign investment. And my mind blows up every time I hear somebody say that and it keeps happening time and time again in Washington. And I'm like, no, the data you're actually sharing is evidence that you're a terrible place for a foreigner to come in because you've closed off your market. Am I wrong in that? So, um, you're... you're um... I would say you're half right. Um, so you see, the, 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 some, sometimes what is good for the investor is not good for the economy. Sometimes what is good for the investor is good for the economy, and sometimes it's not. So in this case, the, the, in fact, the, the, the strategy, that investment promotion strategy that, that you just described seems to be the right investment promotion strategy because you're telling them... Um, you're telling them, you know, come, I'm, pro I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you a captive market, come and invest. Uh, what you're also telling them is, come, I'll give you a captive market so that you don't need to export, right? So that's, that's what you're telling them. Uh, in a way, in a way what, what you see with the, mobile, uh, with the mobile policy, the mobile phone policy, uh, is something like that, right? Is you decrease duties on completely knocked down kits and you increase duties on completely built units, of mobile phones. So you told these firms, come because I'm going to give you the parts very cheap without paying duties and I'm going to protect you against competition. Nobody will be able to import mobile phones made, already assembled. So you can come and assemble. You're at the same time telling them, don't export because in the domestic market, I'm giving you such a chunky profit rate that why would you go and export? So that implicit don't export, of course, is not something they mean. They would like them to export, but this, the system of incentives is such that doesn't doesn't favor that. Uh, so in a way, in a way, when when they close the economy this way, for those investors they are targeting that are the market 
oriented investors, those market seeking investors, uh, that's the right, uh, the right approach to, to attract them. But for the investors that you probably want, that are investors that come and make of Pakistan a platform for exports, uh, those investors want something else. Those investors want, want uh, easy processes to move goods and services across borders, right? Letters of credit that get approved seamlessly, no import uh, licenses, low import duties, uh, and systems of transport and logistics that are that are good, right? What we see in investors that go to Vietnam, or investors that go to Cambodia, investors that go to Poland, or you know, uh, and this is, by the way, um, this is something that we see. So we, one thing in the report that we also do is we estimate FDI potentials, right? And, and, and we look at the type of FDA that Pakistan attracts. And, and we looked at, so there's a database that has a information about announcements. So investors that announce investments in a particular country. So we look at Pakistan and they, they declare the motivation. So we do what is called a text analysis. So we analyze the keywords that are in those motivations. And when you analyze the keywords in the motivations, what you see is that the motivations are always around the size of the market. Right or the growth potential of the market. They are never around efficiency with which you can produce or the export platform or the opportunities to trade. Uh, so that limits the pool of investors, right? So the, the type of incentives that you have in place limits the pool of investors, but also limits the, capa the capacity of those investors to be catalyzers of productivity growth. Um, so, so. Again, I think that in, that promotion strategy may be good to attract those investors, but probably those investors are not the ones you want to attract. Yeah, yeah. and I think, um, you know, in an era where supply chains are shifting post-pandemic for the U.S.-China competition, resiliency, et cetera, the approach is also wrong, right? Um, and I think even the, um, the investors who perhaps 10, 15 years ago may have been attracted by the closed nature of the market in Pakistan, I think they've smartened up primarily because now they know that the market may be closed and there may be good profits in rupee terms, but you can't repatriate those damn profits out because the country's always short on dollars. And so every time you're stuck with two, three, four million, I think right now the dividends that are stuck um, to be repatriated are in excess of a billion dollars, if I remember my data correctly. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've smartened up. Yes, you can make great profit, but ultimately you have to repatriate it out to your parent HQ. And if you can't do that and the rupee slips by 30% by the time you can do it, the whole long-term nature of that investment begins, you, you raise questions over that as well. Um, moving on from this, um, Gonzalo, it's of course, we're recording this a day after International Women's Day. Um, we saw terrible violence inflicted on women protesters in Islamabad and in Lahore. It, it's just this really sad situation in terms of a country countries move forward with this, right? So we've seen Women's Day marches in Pakistan happen, criticism around it, threats of violence around it. But by and large, we saw space grow. And this year has been disappointing because that space has receded. And so it's not a good omen for the future uh, of women in Pakistan. But you talk about women's role in the formal economy in the report as well. Um, and one of the things is, and we know this from our data, for example, youth literacy, Half of Pakistani young women are illiterate, according to the UN. Uh, you look at labor force participation, that even at the higher levels of education, labor force participation for women in Pakistan lags of Bangladesh or lags in India, for example, which are also in the subcontinent. Um, 
you've looked at this uh, in, 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 in this report. Um, tell us a bit about what can be the positive impact on Pakistan's economy to not just be a poster child for women inclusion. We're not there yet, and I don't think we'll get there. But just bridging the divide with a Bangladesh, which got independence, you know, was part of Pakistan, got independence from Pakistan in 71, and is basically in the same region. What happens if we catch up to them? Right. So you mentioned, so you mentioned that, that there are important gaps. There are important gaps in schooling. There are important gaps in, in labor force participation, right? In participation in, in, in paid employment or in labor markets more generally. Uh, and it's true that there are huge gaps with respect to men, you know, females with respect to men, but with a difference. Uh, educational attainment for women have made strides over past decades in Pakistan. So the gap is still there, it's big, but it has been narrowing. But female labor force participation rates have remained really low. Uh, they're among the lowest in the world. So what you, when you put these two pieces of the puzzle together, what you see is back again to the allocation problem, right? You have talent and you're not using it. And you cannot afford not to use it, right? Because you, you're a poor country. You're a country that needs to grow. And so misallocating resources is a problem, as we said before. Misallocating talent is worse. Um, so what we did he here, and as you mentioned, is you know there are many reasons why women don't work in Pakistan, in, across the world, but also in Pakistan. Some have to do with gender norms that are cultural in nature, and that may take a lot of time to to evolve. Uh, so, you know, it would be irrelevant, like irrelevant or futile to say, okay, what happens if Pakistan's female labor force participation matches those of Norway, right? That's a, an irrelevant question to, to ask. Uh, but we, what we did was we said, okay, what happens if, if it matches the levels of Bangladesh, country with similar cultural norms? So we estimate that if Pakistan's female labor force participation rates were to match those of Bangladesh, GDP gains would range from five to 23%. Uh, in the short run, so static, this is a static gain, depending on, on complementary labor market policies. And, and, and keep in mind this, this emphasis I'm making on static, and then I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, so the range is quite big because it's 5 to 23%, right? So almost you, you could add almost a quarter of GDP, uh, you know, in size of the economy by matching the levels of female labor force participation in Bangladesh. Um, the range is large because it depends on which sectors these women go, right? So whether they, for example, you could have more women working in agriculture. We have a big chunk of women working in agriculture. That's more acceptable, you know? Uh, but you can also have them work in paid employment. And that, that's better type of employment. And so uh, that will have a, a bigger boost to, to uh, GDP. And then of course, how you know that compositional change in employment will depend on labor market policies and will depend on a number of, of enabling factors, which I can I can I can discuss. But I wanted to to come back to this static issue. So this is a static gain estimate, but there's a dynamic gain estimate, you know, over the long term that has to do with this better allocation of talent, it has to do with empowering people to do what they are good at. Right? And that, over the long term, will have much larger 
gains that we don't estimate in the report, but it's only reasonable to expect that when women are given opportunities to contribute to the economy in the way they are best endowed to do, they uh, will do better and the whole economy will do better, right? Again, if you want to go to the Babarasam uh, example, right? If you if 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 you don't allow Babarasam to play any sport, you're missing out. If because there are cultural norms and the only thing he can do is 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 being a weightlifter, yeah, he'll contribute to the economy, but up to a certain level. But if you allow Babarasam to exploit all of its talent, probably he'll go and bat, and he'll be fantastic, and then the economy will grow, right? Because everybody will benefit from that. So this. You can you can continue playing with this analogy. Yeah, uh, I was gonna because... say it, it would be you know if you allow Babarazam's sister to play cricket and she has the same level of talent, if you don't allow her, she's not going to win a World Cup for Pakistan or be a number one women batter for Pakistan because simply she's not been allowed to showcase and harness her talent, which is what's happening with a lot of women in Pakistan right now. Um, and it's important, the point that you made about education gaps being, uh, uh, you know, curtailed, not but the, yeah, the participation not going up, it's the phenomenon that many of us in Pakistan have heard about doctor brides, right? People in when they're looking for brides for their sons uh, will say, oh, I want a doctor wife, but she shouldn't be practicing. Uh, so they want somebody who's trained to be a doctor in a country which needs a lot more doctors, but they want her to sit at home. Um, which is ridiculous, but it goes to that cultural phenomenon you were talking about. And on the dynamic gain part, Gonzalo, I think it's again important to flag this for people, right? We know from global research, including in Bangladesh, that when you get women to study more and then enter the workforce, they will have children later on in their life. They will have fewer number of children, which in a resource scarce country helps improve outcomes for healthcare and education and makes your spending more efficient. It also helps on the food security crisis because you sort of cut down on the growth of your population and all of the bad things that come with that. Um, and so that dynamic gain automatically comes in a generation, 10 years, 15 years down the road, which is very important um, in, in that space. And, and I think one area which still is, I think Karandas put out its financial inclusion survey. You're seeing a, a narrowing of the gap on financial inclusion for women as well but not by as much as we should aspire to, right? And I think that, again, remains and continues to remain a challenge uh, for the country. And, and, and again, no country, especially a poor country like Pakistan, as you said, can progress without half of its population being empowered and being allowed to harness their own talent, right? And that's the real unfortunate part right now. Um, last question, Gonzalo, before I let you go. You've written this roadmap um, and, and there's a lot of interesting stuff. And again, I would encourage folks to read it. The link is in the description. Um, there's a caretaker government coming, Gonzalo. And I say, you're the, the main advisor on economic reform. Um, what would be two or three things that you would tell a caretaker setup or the next prime minister after elections to say, look, if you did this in your first hundred days, you could really the country on the path to sustainable growth and reform like what would be your two or three like pet reforms that you would love to see in pakistan given all of the research and analysis you've done about this economy right so um let me let me structure this answer in two parts uh, because um it, it's it's these reforms 
that I would like to see, uh, they come in a sequence and the sequence matters. And this is what we say in the, in the report. So if you go to section recommendations, uh, we emphasize a lot the importance of the sequence here. Um, so, you know, the, we, we basically say that you, you need a sequence in which you first focus on removing distortions. And by removing distortions, and I will get into a little bit of detail after, right? To give you concrete ideas, but you first need to focus on removing distortions because removing distortions is going to allow you to improve the allocation of resources and talent, yeah? Now, after you started removing distortions, focus on maximizing the impact of that by doing reforms that help firms grow. But if you focus on helping firms grow when you haven't removed the distortions, they will grow in the wrong places. In the wrong sector. They will grow they, where you don't You don't want need more housing societies in More Pakistan. real estate and housing societies, right? So remove the distortions first and then help firms grow. And last but not least, build a loop from evidence to policymaking. And this sounds like, you know, one of these buzzwords that people say, yes, evidence-based policy. It's very important to build a loop from evidence to, to, from evidence to policy because it shows people what you are doing, right? You can show people what you're doing and why. And in a country that is so, um, in, in a country in which this outsider, insider model of development, people call it lead capture, right? In which you have these powerful insiders that get most of the benefits and many, many outsiders that get, that have to pay the bill. When you build a loop from evidence to policy and you make things more transparent, you are contributing a little bit to breaking this insider-outsider dynamic, this elite capture. And I would also space. add that that evidence to policy loop is also important because it could very well be, right, that well-meaning in the moment right reform to remove a distortion, let's say, five years later may itself create new distortions, right? So you need to continue capturing the evidence to say, you know what, something, and I, I see this in India right now, I think yesterday's story was that the FAME 2 uh, subsidies that they were giving for electrification and mobility, the government now has started looking at evidence and said that firms actually have started gaming this. So the story now is that they're looking at that evidence and doing away with FAME 2 and trying to come up with a new policy to, again, the goal is to electrify mobility. It doesn't change, but they have the evidence coming in to say, you know what, this policy was good when it was rolled out. It has achieved some success but there are new distortions caused by this. So we need to go back to the drawing board, look at the evidence and draw up something new because the goal is still the same, electrify mobility. But what was good three years ago is not good anymore. And we need to change things around. Exactly. Learning learning from mistakes or, or from how things evolve, as you were describing in the case of India, is crucial, right? And, and to learn, you need evidence. Uh, and you also need humility, right? Because you need humility to accept that what you did was wrong. It was well-intentioned, but it didn't work. So ready to change. I think that's a crucial element. But let's, let's go back to the actual uh, reform. So when it comes to removing distortions, um, I would say in the interest of time, I will just choose two, right? The first one is a, you need to tax property better, more, and you need to tax land more. So taxing land and taxing property, so that you level the playing field. And invest, investing in dynamic trade-offs is already complicated, 
right? So if, if you want to go and invest in manufacturing or modern services, it's already complicated in its own right. You don't want to make it even more difficult by having substantially higher profit tax rates on those sectors than what you have for the income that comes from more passive type of investments like real estate. So you need to increase tax rates on income from property. Uh, and that will level the playing field and that will naturally increase the size of your tradable sector that is more dynamic or more prone to productivity gains. So that is uh, distortion number one that needs to be removed. And I would say distortion number two that needs to be removed has to do with the closeness, closeness of the economy. The economy needs to be open. Now, of course, the fear of opening the economy or reducing import duties is always to, to there are two things, apart from the, the vested interest, right? So if you keep vested interest, that are very important, but it's the flood of imports. This is what policymakers care. So you say, well, there's no foreign exchange. We'll deindustrialize. We will like lose everything that we make. Toyota and Honda will go under and then lacks of jobs will be gone, Gonzalo. So that's that's one element, right? And the second element is the revenues that you may lose. So on the flood of imports, there is no better moment to open up than after a relatively large depreciation of your currency. Because the depreciation of your currency acts as a natural shield right? That protects the domestic industry, but protects it in a less distorsive way than import duties, right? So it's a deterrent for imports, but also an encouragement for exports, right? Which, which is not the case for, for import duties that are a deterrent for imports, but also a deterrent for exports. So the moment to open up is after a large depreciation of the exchange rate. This is something that we see across countries, right? The experience in Chile, the experience in Taiwan uh, are experiences that, that show you that, that the timing matters. And right after that, that, so that depreciation exchange rate, real depreciation gives you some protection temporary. Uh, and then, then that is the moment without getting flooded by imports or reducing import duties. On the revenue side, what you need to focus is on eliminating exemptions on customs duties that currently go to firms that are inward oriented. So if you look at what is called the fifth schedule of the customs code, it, 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 it makes explicit what sort of exemptions different sectors or different types of firms get uh, for inward oriented projects. That carries the bulk of the exemptions. So that's a tax expenditure, right? It's an exemption customs duty. Uh, so it's foregone income of FBR. Um, you need to rationalize that so that you can reduce duties for everyone rather than for those that, for some reason, comply with this strange Which, again, are vested interests and insiders who are able to talk to the policymakers in the power corridors and say, add me to the fifth schedule. Or, or they are just large, and so they can deal with the whole cost of dealing with this, yes. right? Uh, so streamlining the fifth schedule will give you fiscal space so that you can reduce tariffs for everyone uh, without losing a big chunk of your fiscal revenue, your tax revenue. So that's on the, on the, on the allocative part. Agricultural subsidies we discussed already, so that's another important element. Uh, then when it comes to maximizing the, the impact of, of removing distortion, so when it comes to helping firms grow, so I'll say three things here. So the first one is fiscal discipline so that the crowding out leaves space for a crowding in. So spend right in the right things 
and less in the wrong things so that there's less crowding out and more crowding in. Second is bankruptcy and insolvency laws that facilitate the dissolution of companies that are not operating, um, not operating efficiently uh, so that resources can flow into those that do operate efficiently uh, and creditors have legal recourse. And if creditors have legal recourse, you will be able to uh, secure more funding for, uh, for profitable private investments. And third, focus subsidies to the private. So sometimes we, we are allergic to, to the word subsidies, right? The, the issue is not so much that subsidies are evil, but it's how you structure the subsidies. So move away from unconditional subsidies to the private sector and focus on subsidies that, are, that operate in a smart way, right? That have this loop from evidence to policy and support, for example, expansions of new firms, support upgrading of firms' capabilities, conditional on export targets, for example, rather than giving blanket subsidies or exemptions into taxes, tax breaks, tax expenditures uh, in, a, in an unconditional way without making that uh, you know, conditional on, on performance. So move to, to a model of smart subsidies condition on export performance. And then the last element is building this loop from evidence to policymaking. And I would say two things here. First one is have a, have a, a fiscal office that costs every sort of proposal that involves tax expenditures or uh, substantial uh, expenditures before it comes to, to the approval process. Uh, and introducing the PSDP process, impact evaluations for large projects and standard monitoring evaluation for relatively smaller projects. So that the feasibility study process around PSDP uh, brings a lot more evidence that it brings today. Uh, so these are just uh, some, some examples, but again, first, remove distortions so that when you help firms grow, they grow in the comparative advantage sectors and not in the distorted sectors. Uh, and then build this dynamic loop from, from evidence to, to policy. That, that would be the sequence and a, a subset of reforms. For more, please read the, the report. I would encourage everyone. That, that's very well put, Gonzalo. And, and again, <laughs> To conclude our episode with the analogy that you started with, um, we have Babar Azam with a broken back. His, unfortunately, due to allocative inefficiencies, has been locked in a gym. Uh, we can't do anything about him. He's gone. But Pakistan is a young country. It's one of the youngest countries in the world, which means that for every Babar Azam in our hypothetical scenario with a broken back who's weightlifting when he shouldn't have been, um, and for every Babar Azam sister, Huma Azam, let's name her Huma Azam, uh, that has not been able to get the opportunity uh, to be even allocated into that gym, there are a hundred more of them. And they're young, they're connected to the world, they have aspirations and ambitions, and they want to compete with the rest of the world, and they have the talent and the capabilities and the hunger to beat the world. Um, and the roadmap essentially, and this is, I think, why... I, the reason why I extend this analogy to this point is that because Pakistan is a young country, it means that the pathway out of this crisis is actually not that complicated. Yes, a lot of water has gone under the bridge. A lot of inefficiencies exist. There are a lot of problems in the political economy, which I refer to as a kleptocracy. But the general energy of the youth of this country, because it's a younger country, 
means that if you get the basics right, as you explained it, right, get rid of the distortions, allow better competition, allocate resources better, and then have this loop where evidence-based policymaking continues for five, seven, 10 years, my view is that within that period, in the blink of an eye, um, the country's trajectory will change just because it's so young, right? And and I think that people miss in these dark times is that, oh, there's no way out of this crisis. My view is the way out of this crisis is actually very easy compared to a lot of the older countries in Europe, in North America, in Asia, like Japan, because they're older, their systems are more mature, their populations are older. A lot of them are more complicated problems to solve than a solving problem for a young country like Pakistan. I think people should understand that there's a lot of hope here. We should not lose sight of that. And I think um, finally, there is this view uh, in increasingly in Pakistan that, oh, the politics is broken to such an extent that we can't break through it. And again, there my view is, in the next 10 years, we will see a generational shift in politics in this country, which is the opportunity, right? Can a new generation of policymakers actually break away from the past? And the answer to this should be yes, and hopefully will be yes. And it may not seem that way at this point in time, but let's be honest, this, we're in 2023. Back in 2013, the city I'm from, Karachi, when I went, I still remember this, 10 p.m., 9 p.m., cafes would shut down because the violence was so high in that city, right? And Karachi still has a lot of problems, but it doesn't shut down at 10 p.m. anymore. It's open till 4 a.m. again, right? So in a decade, things have flipped in, in sort of from the one of the darkest periods of time in that city and the country with the violence that were across the board to relative security in the country. So again, my message uh, to people would be read the report, there's a pathway to reform here. And just the fact that Pakistan is young means that the way out actually is quite fast if the right things are done and the sequence matters. So Gonzalo, thank you so much for taking out the time, for joining us once again, and for the research you and your team have put out. Um, hopefully somebody will read it in the policymaking circles and implement the pathway out uh, because I think it would be a shame and it would be a crime against the future generations of this country if that path is not followed, just because they can and will win around the world. So thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity, sir. It was a pleasure.